Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Myths of Yore. I'm back again, and so soon after the last episode. But it is Halloween month, and it is our anniversary coming up. So I had to celebrate with a few extra special episodes. We already looked at the mythical history of witches and told some spooky stories, so why not a spooky constellation, right? Well, today, that's exactly what we're doing. Today, we're looking at the lucky 13th horoscope, Ophiuchus, outright rejected by many, but we're going to look at it anyway, and a bit at its neighbor's serpents. We'll delve into its story, but we'll also share an alternative version that has environmental terrorism, an insult to a god, a curse, and an insatiable hunger. So without further ado, let's get started. Ophiuchus as a constellation is a fairly large one. Of all the current constellations, it's the 11th largest in terms of area. Only a small tail of it lies on the ecliptic, which is why it's not usually considered one of the horoscope signs. You might have come across news that NASA was bringing forth a 13th zodiac. Well, this was a bit of an exaggeration. In reality, when they created the astrological signs, the Babylonians had chosen to exclude this 13th sign. But NASA had just done the math, as they put it, to see what the signs would look like if the Babylonians had chosen to keep it. The jury, however, was never really out on whether or not it should be included in the Zodiac, because the majority of astrology-loving people had just outright rejected a change in the 12 signs. Ophiuchus lies in the southern sky. However, because of the size of this horoscope, and because only a small portion of it lies on the ecliptic, its location is hard to pinpoint using the zodiacal horoscopes. It is technically between Sagittarius and Scorpio, but it is significantly higher above them. To triangulate it, you need to use Sagittarius, Scorpio, and Hercules, and that's why it's actually considered one of the Hercules constellations. It was one of the first constellations catalogued by Ptolemy in the 2nd century. We discussed him before, you might remember. You can think of him as one of the first people to think of cataloging what was up there. Ophiuchus is home to four meteor showers, seven global clusters, which means it's very star-heavy, and it's home to a binary star system, Razalhaeg. But all in all, unless you are an avid astronomer, you probably won't know any of the sky wonders that Ophiuchus houses. So you might even go as far as to say that it's kind of a boring constellation. Mythologically, however, it's a bit of a goldmine. Its Latin name is Serpentarius, as this constellation is often associated with its neighbor serpents. In English, it is known as the Serpent Bearer, and we'll get to the whys of these later on. But there are several stories that Ophiuchus is associated with, and as such, and we've seen this in our podcast before, the serpent bearer could be a number of characters. Now, several of these myths agree that this constellation is that of a man, and along with serpents, its neighbor, it's the image of a man holding and struggling with a giant snake. In some imagery, the serpent is coiled around his waist. In others, it looks more like he's flossing. 
Now, while there seems to be no agreement among the astronomers or the anthropologists on whether the constellation Ophiuchus predated the Greeks, there are some who believe it may have been the Babylonian sitting gods, who were serpent-bodied men known as the ancestors of Enlil, who was the ultimate leader of the Babylonian pantheon. They represented the duality of Earth as the source of all living things and fertility, and as a land of the dead. But it could also have been the Babylonian god Nera, which meant little snake, and he was the messenger of Istaron, god of the city-state of Dur. In this form, the constellation would depict Nera with a human body and serpent legs. Or it could be the Egyptian Harrow constellation of the bull-headed man with a plow from the Dendara zodiac. Either way, it either lost all of its lineage back to ancient zodiac, or it never had any to begin with. So most of what we have is Greek mythology. And it's a rich one. The first interpretation of this constellation is from the story of Triptolemus, and it's supposed to depict Carnabon, the king of the Getty. That's G-E-T-A-E. When Triptolemus was only a baby, Persephone was taken by Hades to the underworld. Her mother and the goddess of harvest and agriculture, Demeter, came to Triptolemus's father, Celius, in the guise of an old woman to seek shelter during her search for her daughter. Celius was one of her priests, but even without knowing who she was, he treated her very kindly and hospitably. Well, she wanted to leave them a gift for their hospitality. So at night, she would take their son Demophon from its crib, and little by little, she was burning away his immortality. However, one night, Demophon's mother Metanira walked in on them and disrupted the process. I'm pretty sure she was terrified, because you wake up in the middle of the night, go into your baby's room, and there's the old lady you allowed to stay in your home, holding your baby over the house fire. So instead of making Demophon immortal, Demeter then chose to breastfeed their other son, Triptolemus, who was very sick at the time. With the strength of Demeter's milk, Triptolemus not only healed immediately, he also grew into an adult. Demeter then took it upon herself to teach him all the ways of the art of agriculture. Triptolemus is then said to have gone on to teach the rest of Greece everything he learned about planting and reaping crops. Under Demeter's protection, Triptolemus was flying across Greece on a chariot drawn by a dragon. One day, Triptolemus found himself in the lands of Gedi, near the borders of current-day Bulgaria and Romania. Here resided King Carnabon, the ruler of Gedi. Upon seeing Triptolemus, he initially treated him like an honored guest. However, he was actually treacherously planning to seize and murder him. He secretly had Triptolemus's dragon killed so he could not get away, and was about to carry out his murderous plot against Triptolemus when Demeter stepped in. Triptolemus was rescued and immediately given another dragon so he could get away. Carnabon, on the other hand, was heavily punished. The rest of his life, albeit shorter than he probably ever imagined, was unbearable. But his suffering did not end with his life, for Demeter vowed to make an example of him. 
Upon his death, Carnabon was placed among the stars with a dragon in his hands, constantly struggling and strangling the dragon and never able to escape or kill it. This was to serve as a warning to all humans of Carnabon's insult to Demeter and his everlasting punishment for it. The second interpretation of Ophiuchus is as a representation of Asclepius. Asclepius is the son of Apollo and the hero god of medicine. You might have seen the rod or staff of Asclepius. It is a single snake wrapped around a staff to depict medicine or healing. It looks very similar to the caduceus we mentioned in our episode on the naga or nagi. While some organizations have used these symbols interchangeably, caduceus was kind of a latecomer. Originally, it seems it was the rod of Asclepius that represented healing, because that's what he was known for. Now, even I didn't know that until now. When I researched Naga Nagi, it was Caduceus that showed up, but it seems Asclepius was quite an important guy on the healing scene. He apparently cared a ton about people and about making them well. He wanted to heal everything and everyone. And while he was a demigod, most of the time he could only use natural ways to heal people. One, because he didn't really have any magical powers. And two, even though he had magical friends in high places, they kind of didn't like his meddling, death-delaying ways. I mean, some gods and goddesses needed people to get sick and die, even if strictly for the prayer and worship they'd get during the duration of their illness. One version of his story linked to Ophiuchus says that Asclepius was so aspirational that he took his goals of healing all the way to bringing the dead back to life. And some myths that involve him even claim that he managed this. Hippolytus was the son of the Amazon warrior Hippolyte and Theseus, king of Athens. We've talked about him before. After her death, Theseus had married Phaedra. Well, Hippolytus was such a charming character that Phaedra, Theseus's new wife, fell in love with him. Madly. But when Hippolytus found out about it, not only did he outright reject her, he was kind of rude about it. He's said to have done it with disgust. I mean, I don't blame him. You kind of don't want to have your stepmom have a thing for you. Heartbroken, Phaedra killed herself, but left a note accusing Hippolytus of horrific deeds. Jealous and angry, Theseus blamed Hippolytus for her death. At this point in his life, Theseus was on really good terms with Poseidon, so he sent one of Poseidon's curses after his son, a sea monster that frightened Hippolytus's horses so badly that they lurched forward. Hippolytus fell off the chariot and became entangled in the reins and got dragged for a while. By the time the horses stopped, Hippolytus was on the brink of death. As Hippolytus lay there dying, Artemis came to his side. Theseus was there too, and Artemis told him about Phaedra and her feelings for his son. He also found out about Hippolytus rejecting her and honoring his father. With that, the father forgave his son, and Hippolytus died. But, you haven't forgotten about our hero Asclepius, have you? Well, Asclepius resuscitated Hippolytus, but once he came back, he would not hear of forgiving his father for anything. 
So he moved to Italy, changed his name, and got a new religion. No joke. But this event had pissed off some very high-level people. In fact, it had pissed off Zeus himself. He was not going to have some two-bit demigod walking around, changing the course of nature, meddling with the curses of gods, and bringing back people from the dead. So he took one of his lightning bolts, took aim from up high, and hurled it at Asclepius, killing him instantly. Well, this obviously pissed off Apollo, because one, that was his son, and two, this is ancient Greece. You can't take a step without offending at least three gods. So, as revenge, Apollo killed Zeus's Cyclopses, the creatures who made his lightning bolts. Now, surprisingly, Zeus acted logically and did not retaliate, because he kind of understood where Apollo was coming from. I'm sure he thought that if any other god had killed one of his 3,876 children, he would be pissed too. That's not an exact number, of course, just an estimate. So instead of going back and forth with this revenge plot, he simply took Asclepius and put him in the sky. Now you might be asking, yeah, but Jada, why did Zeus give him a snake? Well, because in many versions of the myth of Asclepius, he's said to have discovered his resurrection powers via an encounter with a snake. Two, actually. According to this version, Glaucus, son of the Cretan king Minos, he's the one with the hidden labyrinth and the monster we talked about before, fell into a jar of honey and drowned. Devastated and grieving, Minos and his wife, Pasiphae, refused to bury their child. They locked him up tight in a vault and started looking for cures to bring him back. Well, by this point, Asclepius's fame for healing had reached far and wide within Greece. So Minos had his men find and bring Asclepius to him. But Asclepius told Minos that he had not yet found a cure for death, for he hadn't. Minos was furious because he thought for sure that Asclepius was lying. Well, in the grieving process, logic kind of does tend to leave you sometimes. He had him locked up in the vault with his dead baby. As Asclepius sat there, leaning on his staff, a snake coiled itself around his staff and started climbing. Remember this imagery? Asclepius was scared, so he threw the snake on the ground and started bashing it with his staff until it died. All of a sudden, another snake slithered out of a hole with some herbs in its mouth and put it on the head of the dead snake. And the dead snake revived, and both of them slithered away, as if nothing had happened. It is believed that thus came Asclepius upon his miraculous cure for death, which is why when he killed Asclepius, Zeus gave him a snake in the sky so that everyone can always remember what Asclepius was best at healing those who were ill, even from death. And this story brings us to why I'm telling you about Ophiuchus in the first place, because here's the juiciest stories of them all. Like I promised, it's got curses, it's got insatiable hunger, it's got it all. Erisichten was the king of Thessaly. He was quite wealthy and powerful, had beautiful rich lands that were central to many heroes and myths, and had a lovely family. But in spite of all of this, he never thanked the gods, nor offered a single sacrifice. 
He did not follow any of the deities and just boasted that it was his power and intellect that got him everything he ever gained. He also really loved glam and showmanship. He had a fairly large home and many servants. One day, he took a large group of servants and went off in search of some wood to build a larger, better dining hall in his home. They looked around for a while but could not find the type of glamorous, strong, special wood that fit Erisichten's exquisite tastes. At the same time, near where they were searching, a group of Demeter's priestesses were having a spiritual ceremony in honor of her. Demeter, you'll remember from the beginning of our episode. She was the mother of Persephone and the goddess of agriculture and harvest. She had tried to burn mortality out of Demophon but had been caught. Instead, she had settled with breastfeeding Triptolemus, making him her messenger who would go around Greece and teach people how to sow and reap crops. Anyway, well, she had had this very beautiful, luscious part of the forest dedicated to her. It was her own little sacred grove where those who devoted their lives to her would often hold religious ceremonies. Today was such a day. And it shouldn't surprise anyone that being dedicated to the goddess of agriculture and harvest, this area grew the most beautiful, strongest, best trees. Erisichten and his crew came upon the young priestesses during their devotion. He immediately knew he had to have one of these trees for himself. It would make the best dining hall. Well, he had one problem, though. When he went in with his people to start hacking at the place, the young woman stopped him and explained that this was a sacred place dedicated to Demeter, that it should be respected and left untouched, that anyone who harmed her trees would, for sure, suffer the wrath of Demeter. Of course, Erisichten did not listen. He had no patience nor any place in his plans for gods or goddesses. So he turned to his men and ordered them to begin chopping down the trees. But they hesitated. While Erisichten was not a devout man, they still feared the Greek gods and goddesses. They refused to make any of them angry because they had grown up hearing of the stories of what they could do if you crossed them. He yelled at his men, threatened them, pushed them around, and none would budge. In his fury, Erisichten's eye caught one beautiful and large oak that was covered with wreaths. These were put on this tree as votive symbols to Demeter, but obviously Erisichten did not care. All he wanted to do that second was harm something beautiful of this area because someone had told him he could not have his fancy dining hall. So he grabbed his axe and began rushing towards the tree. Seeing what was in his mind, one of Demeter's devotees, a young Dryad nymph, lunged at him. But Erisichten whacked her with the back of his axe and she fell on the ground. In his fury, Erisichten did not realize the harm he had caused, but he had severely injured the delicate nymph. He hacked and slashed at the tree until it was down. But as he was busy so violently defiling Demeter's sacred cove, the nymph he had injured was on the brink of death. With her last breath, she uttered a curse on Erisichten, which, of course, uttered in Demeter's sacred cove by her devoted follower, immediately reached her ears. When she found out what had taken place, Demeter was beyond angry. She was vengeful. 
she responded to the nymph's curse and went to Lymos, also known as Famis by the Romans. Now, Lymos was the genderless deity of unrelenting and insatiable hunger and of famine. While Demeter, goddess of harvest, and Lymos of hunger and famine were in opposition in Greek mythology, this did not mean they detested each other. They each had their role to play, so when she asked for help, Lymos obliged. Lymos immediately crawled into Erysichthon's stomach. Erysichthon grew increasingly hungry within hours, and food and water acted like fuel to a fire. The more he ate or drank, the hungrier he got. The hungrier he got, the more he ate and drank. At first, his family was not overly concerned. They fed him as much as they could, as often as they could. But these episodes of him gorging himself on food became more and more frequent. Soon, he couldn't even see visitors or sit with his family because he could not stop eating. Before he could swallow one piece of food, he was already stuffing the next into his mouth and chugging, chugging out of wine bottles, water bottles, whatever he could find. When the family could no longer afford to feed his hunger, they began selling their possessions. All those things that Erysichthon had gathered, all those years of showmanship, they were all sold off to the highest bidder. And when every piece of furniture, jewelry, clothing, etc. were sold, well, that's when Erysichthon took his daughter, Mestra, and sold her to the highest bidder, on the slave market. Now, thankfully, Poseidon was Maestra's lover, so when he found out what had happened to her, he gave her the ability to shapeshift into any creature at will. With this power, she escaped her bonds and was taken by Poseidon to the island of Kos to be freed from her father. Soon, Erysichthon had lost everything. Wife, child, home, possessions... He was destitute and ever starving, begging on the street for scraps of food while feeling the deathly pang of hunger every passing second. But of course, being the king of his region, people knew of him, and they also knew what he had done. So while some felt sorry for him, many refused to help him, knowing him for the greedy, child-selling, goddess-disrespecting bozo that he was. One such night, as the pain of hunger was gnawing at his stomach, and he was sitting there in the cold in his desolate, desperate state, Erysichthon got to the end of his rope. He took a look around him, hoping for anything he could chew and swallow to satiate his hunger, if for a little. But aside from his ragged clothes, the only thing he could see were his arms. The first bite felt different. Unlike the food he had eaten before, this meat felt like it actually satiated him. He took another bite from his arm, and then another. It was different. It was satiating him. Having suffered from hunger for so long, he could not stop. Bite after bite after bite, this relief, this satisfaction, was what he had been looking for all this time. Come morning. Passerbys did not find Erysichthon in his usual place. His frayed clothes were there, sure, but other than that, it was just an empty corner on the street. Nothing remained of him, and no one ever saw him again. Now, how is this tale related to Ophiuchus? 
Well, because as we have gotten used to it here, just like all myths, this one also has various versions. And in one of these versions, Demeter is not satisfied by just giving Erisicht an insatiable hunger, where he eventually eats himself. No. After she asks Limos to enter his stomach, she also sends a large snake after him to torture and plague him for the rest of his days. So while he is constantly gorging himself on food, he is also snapped at and bitten by this monstrously large snake. And when he finally dies, Demeter is still not satisfied. She then takes Erisichten and places him, along with the snake, in the sky. Not to warn people of his story and his punishment like she did with King Carnabon, no, but to continue to punish him for the rest of eternity. This, my dear listeners, brings us to the end of our special constellation myth for Halloween. It is a shorter one, as it is not a very well-known constellation or a very old one at that, but I still wanted to share it with you. If all goes accordingly, I plan on being back with one more episode before Halloween. Until then, I hope you enjoyed our trip through the constellation of Fucus and its partner Serpens. If you like this episode, follow me on Instagram and Facebook, please like and share my podcast, rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, and visit my website at mitsofyore.com. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other, and remember, our stories show that deep down, We are more alike than we think.